you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, we have been in a series uh, looking together at Jesus's masterful ethical vision given to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And so each week we've been walking through a different portion of this uh, beautiful, beautiful uh, sermon that Jesus preached. And this morning we're going to be looking together at this famous passage about the vocation and the identity of the church as being salt and light. And so as we prepare to look into God's word together, let's pray and let's ask that God would speak to us. Father, we come to you now. You are the giver of every good and perfect gift. And this morning, as we live in a time and in a place that is in desperate need of rain, we give you thanks, O God, for the rain. We thank you, O God, for the ways in which you continue to shower us, not only with uh, the physical blessing of rain, but with the many, many gifts that we enjoy each and every day of our lives, our family, our friends, health, our homes. God, these all come to us from your hand, and so we return our thanks and our praise back to you. And we thank you, God, that you come and you meet with us when we gather in your name, and we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts, and we pray that your spirit would speak, and that you would give us ears to attend to your voice this morning. And we ask all these things in the great, and in the saving, and in the powerful name of Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So a couple weeks ago, I was invited to the Sierra Madre City Council to lead the prayer of invocation. And it was a pretty interesting experience to go to the city council meeting. I thought it was pretty fun, actually. You know, people come there, they got their water bills in hand, and they want to know about the taxes on this thing and this surcharge here. And they're asking questions about the fire department, the different concerns that we have. And it's pretty cool to see a pretty active civic life here in our little community. And so I was asked to uh, give the prayer of invocation. And it was pretty great because after I had led the prayer, uh, one of the council members stood up And he started to share about a former member of our church who recently went to be with the Lord. His name is Tim Oste. And he stood up and he just said, you know, I don't know how many of you know this. And he said this in front of the entire group of people there. He said, but uh, this last week we lost a beloved member of this community, Tim Oste. And he said, what a remarkable life this man lived. And he started to share about all of the ways in which he contributed to Sierra Madre the ways in which he cared for the trees around our community, uh, the ways in which he selflessly and sacrificially gave himself in just really winsome and compelling ways through this community. And he was so missed by this council member and by so many people in this community. And I remember listening to this, and I just thought, man, that's beautiful. That this man lived such a compelling life that he was missed And he was so missed in this community that somebody stood up in a council meeting and shared about his life. And it made me ask questions about my own life and my own legacy. Important questions like, how will I be remembered after I die? What kind of influence am I having? What kind of legacy will I leave? And it actually made me begin to think some questions about our own identity, our own influence as a church. 
You know, years ago, there was a question that really captivated the hearts of many, many churches all over the United States, and it was put to many churches by a man named Eric Swanson. He's got a great last name, uh, no relationship, but a good last name. In, in a book that he wrote about churches that have influence, and in this book, he, put, he raised this question. He said, and he forced churches to, to wrestle with this very, very challenging question. And the question was, if your church disappeared tomorrow, would anybody know the difference? If your church suddenly disappeared off the map, would anybody in the community miss the church? It's a very challenging, it's a very penetrating question. Because I think for many churches, their influence is neutral at best, and it is negative at worst. And it is true that many churches can grow insular. There can be power struggles and political battles within churches. Uh, religious people can become very critical and self-righteous and judgmental. Uh, religion can make people look down on other people. And churches can actually uh, turn in on themselves. And they can become very ugly places where all kinds of vices fester. And they can have a negative influence. There can be fights over who uh, gets to serve in different positions of leadership and who controls programs and ways of doing things in church. Churches even fight over things like music. Could you imagine that, people? <laughs> and many people, I know, go to church for the same reason why people on the left will read the editorial page in the New York Times and where people, the, the reason why people on the right will listen to AM talk radio. And why do you listen to AM radio and read the editorial page on the New York Times if you're on the left or right? Well, it's not to be newly informed. It is typically to have what you've always believed reaffirmed. It is to be reminded that you're right and everyone else out there is wrong. And so it becomes an activity in your own self-justification. And of course, this can be the motivation for many people going to church, is they just want somebody to get up and reaffirm that they are right and everyone else out there is wrong. And so it can fester all kinds of self-righteousness. Now, of course, uh, that's not the only story to be told about churches, uh, there are many churches and there are many people in churches that live very compelling, influential, beautiful lives that are an incredible benefit to their neighborhoods and their places of employment and their schools and their communities. And of course, Tim Ostie is just one member, a former member of this church whose life bore that kind of testimony. And I know from, from my experience of many of you, you are in that category. You live a life of irresistible influence. You live beautiful and compelling lives and you're contributing. Your lives are marked by humility and truth and love and hospitality and grace and people thank God that you are around. But that is really our desire as a church, that we become the kind of community that bears an irresistible influence within our community, within the broader Sierra Madre and San Gabriel Valley. You know, today marks uh, my one-year anniversary at this church. So, a year ago today was my first Sunday, and uh, a year ago last week, our family had uprooted itself from Albuquerque, and we took the long road across the desert uh, with my chickens <laughs> and my dog. 
So we had our Honda Pilot. In the back of the Honda Pilot was uh, two chickens, a dog, and my four children, and all of our luggage. We, we, drew, we did the, the trip in two uh, stops, and so our first stop, we had to stay at a hotel, and there were no animals allowed in the hotel. And so we actually had to let, you know, the animals get out for a little bit and spend some time. This is the chickens right outside our little, uh, you know, Hyatt or Hilton or whatever we were staying at uh, where they didn't allow animals. And then we had to uh, stick both the chickens and my pit bull Labrador in the car together through the night and pray to God that they'd all still be there in the morning. (laughs) It was an exercise in faith. And uh, we woke up the next day and they all made it, you know. But, you know, that trip was excruciatingly painful for our family because we were leaving a community that we loved and people we loved and a church we loved. And why did we make this long journey? Why was it that our family uprooted itself? We took our children out of a very, you know, kind of important stage in their life, and we drove across the desert, and we took up residence in this church. Well, it was not simply because I wanted to come back to California. We were happy in New Mexico. New Mexico is a great place. It was not because I needed a job. I had a great job. I was a part of a great church. It was not because I wanted my chickens to um, come under the threats of coyotes in Sierra Madre, which one of them lost their life a few weeks ago. It was very sad. Yeah, right? Thank you for your sympathy. I appreciate that. Listen, I did not come to Sierra Madre so that I could take up a role and lead a religious game of playing church. I didn't come here simply to get a job. I came here because there are far too many churches that have a long historic tradition in Los Angeles that are dying. There are churches all over Los Angeles County that have these beautiful buildings on the outside, but inside they're full of a shrinking, dying congregation. And it is my deep conviction that churches in the heart of communities in this great county of Los Angeles cannot die. We have to see churches revitalized. We've got to see churches grow. We've got to see churches reach out and become a vital witness of the gospel. And this is why I have come to Sierra Madre. It is because we believe God has called us to this place for such a time as this. Now, the question, though, is raised. Well, how is it that our church, both now and in the months and in the years ahead, can really become an irresistible influence within Sierra Madre and the surrounding San Gabriel Valleys and all of our communities around here? How can we be a church that is compelling, that actually is attractive, that draws people in, where people can meet Jesus and be changed? How can we become a church that is marked by life and joy and vitality and spirituality and witness and good works and influence? That is the question we want to ask this morning. And Jesus provides us a very fascinating answer to that question in our text today. Jesus, in our passage that we're looking at today, actually speaks very specifically, directly, boldly, ambitiously about the role of the church in the world. 
And he speaks to us about the kind of influence and impact a community of people that are having their hearts and lives transformed by Jesus and that are taking upon themselves the way of Jesus, how this kind of community of people can have this powerful impact and influence on their surrounding communities. And in fact, I would go so far as to say that in this text, Jesus actually gives us the secret sauce the secret sauce of Christian impact and influence. Kind of what it takes for a church to really make an impact in the community. And so what we're gonna do this morning is I wanna walk through these verses. We're just gonna kind of walk through what Jesus says in this text. And then I wanna stand back and I want us to note the secret sauce in this text for Christian impact, for Christian influence. And this is important. I don't want us to simply engage in this this morning as an exercise in Bible exposition and understanding. I want us to hear these as a charge from our master Jesus to us as a community. This is the call that Jesus puts on our life. So let's walk through this text and we'll stand back and we'll observe the secret sauce. Notice what he says, verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what Jesus does in our passage is he draws upon the most basic, essential stuff in an ancient Jewish household, and that is the stuff of salt and light. And he takes these two metaphors of salt and light, and he applies it to the church and its relationship to the surrounding culture and society. In other words, he draws out these metaphors of light and salt to, tell to, to talk to us about what kind of influence he expects us to have in the world. And so let's go back and let's just take them in turn. Notice he says, you are the salt of the earth. And so let's talk for a minute about salt. Anybody in the house love salt? I probably like it too much. Now, in the ancient world, salt served as both a preservative as well as a flavor enhancer. On the one hand, it served to preserve corroded meat. And so if you went out in the ancient world and you slaughtered a cow and you had all this great, you know, side of beef and these cuts of meat, you couldn't have anywhere to put them in a refrigerator. They couldn't be kept in refrigeration. They didn't have that sort of thing back then. And so what would you need to do? Well, they would douse the meat in salt, and salt would preserve the meat and prevent decay. And Jesus says, you are the salt in the earth. You are my family, my community of people called in order to prevent decay in the corroding world around you. But salt wasn't only meant to prevent decay. In the ancient world, it was also intended to be a flavor enhancer. And of course, you all know that salt is good on everything. You have a piece of meat, it'll be made better with salt. You have a chocolate chip cookie, it is made better if you put a little salt on it. You have caramel ice cream, put some salt on it. You put salt on anything and it actually draws out the flavors and it makes it better. 
And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Enhance this world. Make it better. Make it a place that is full of more joy and beauty and creativity and holiness and goodness and love. Enhance the world. And it's interesting with this uh, two-fold kind of like use of salt, both it's negative of prevention of decay and it's positive of enhancing flavor. Jesus in some ways captures two different postures or two different ways in which we can think about the culture and society around us. On the one hand, our, our world around us is broken and it's corroding and it's getting darker and it's a place where there is corruption of the good. And you can see that in homes and in neighborhoods and in schools and in places of employment where negative vices are coming in and they're distorting it and they're, they're ruining the life and, and Jesus says, step in to the brokenness and prevent the decay. But then the world isn't just broken, the world also has goodness. There are good things in the world around us. You know, creation is... It is broken, but it is created still, and God looks at his world, and he still says there are aspects of this world that are good and that are upheld by God's common grace, and God says, go where there's good and enhance it and make it better. You're like salt on a piece of meat. The meat's good, but salt makes it better. You're like salt on that chocolate chip cookie. The cookie is good, but salt makes it better. And he said, go, where, is there good stuff happening in the PTA? Get involved and make it better. Is there good stuff happening in the Neighborhood Association? Get involved and make it better. Is there good stuff happening in the community garden? Get involved and make it better. You know, where there's good stuff, make it better, enhance it. Jesus says, this is your vocation. You are the salt of the earth. But then he says, you're not just the salt of the earth, you're also the light of the world. Now, light, like salt, also has both negative and positive uses. On the one hand, light serves a negative purpose of driving out the darkness. And there is the darkness of injustice and inhumane treatment of people and animals and, and this world and this earth. And Jesus says, go in where there's darkness and drive it out. You are the light of the world. But then light also serves the purpose of illumination and of revealing. You know, sometimes in the dark, you imagine all kinds of things that might be happening if you're kind of creeped out by the dark. It's okay. You can admit it here. This is a safe place. I remember my first year in Albuquerque, uh, we lived on this property that was on three acres of sagebrush. It was this old adobe style house that a couple uh, engineers and scientists who were not contractors, not construction workers, had just built on their own. They just thought, you know, they could, you know these, these construction workers can do it. Surely we can do the same thing. And they built this kind of awkward uh, adobe house. There was a, a, a big cottonwood tree that was stuck in one of the walls. And it was just this cool old place. We thought, we're going to New Mexico. Let's just do New Mexico. But the only problem with this house is that there were cockroaches. I don't like cockroaches, do you? And so we invited this... Um, it was like this uh, non-toxic kind of organic or whatever uh, uh, bug repellent guy. What do they call those people? Yeah, ex exactly. Exterminator to come out. And uh, 
he came and he met with my wife and I, and he said, look, he said, um, I, I can do a treatment on your house, but I need to warn you, it's going to get worse before it gets better. He says, so we, we put this stuff out, and he says, each day you'll notice more and more cockroaches come out, but then they start to die and they'll be gone, but you'll, it'll get worse before it gets better. And so we heard this, we're like, okay, okay, we're kind of bracing ourselves. And then the next day, my wife uh, took the girls and they left out of town for a week. <laughs> And they left me all by myself in that house with those cockroaches. And I can remember, you know, it seemed like each day more and more cockroaches are coming out. And I, 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 I'm not that weirded out by bugs, but I really, really, cockroaches just give me the heebie-jeebies. And um, so I remember one night going to bed, and I remember just falling into sleep, or trying to go to sleep, and just, it was dark out, and I was just imagining cockroaches all over the walls, you know? And I could just imagine all of this happening around me, and then all of a sudden, this cockroach fell on my face, and I screamed like a little girl. I'm like, ah! And then I got up, and you know, I, you're like, ah, get it off me, ah! You know, and flipped on the lights, and there was actually only one cockroach in the room. <laughs> this is what light does. It exposes the darkness, and it actually shows you what's really there. And followers of Jesus are called to be those who are wise, who live these these lives that are marked by wisdom and love and kindness and grace and goodness. And their kindness and their grace and their goodness and their wisdom actually provides a light for the world. And we are to bring the truth of who God is and what he is about in this world into our world. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Here is our calling. Here is our vocation. Here is why we have been called into being. You know, very often we can have the misunderstanding that the church exists for me. That the the point of the church is to meet my own self-centered interests and, and to achieve and meet all of my preferences. And so I want the music, I want the programs, I want everything to meet my needs because I'm a religious you know, I'm a consumer of religious goods and services, and I pay my tithe, and so I should get what's coming to me. I should get mine, and I'm going to judge you and critique you if it doesn't meet my own standards. Am I being too harsh? But Jesus says, actually, I have called you into being not for yourself, but for the sake of the world. The church, as one theologian said, is the only institution that exists for the good of those who are not yet its members. You see, God blesses us so that we might be a blessing to others. When God draws you in to experience his kindness, the very next thing he does is he sends you out. And he says, now go be an agent, be a conduit of my love and my grace out into the world. And so Jesus says, here is your role. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are called to prevent the decay in the world. You are called to enhance the goodness that's there. You are called to drive out the darkness. You are called to illuminate and to bring wisdom and grace and kindness. This is your vocation. Now, isn't this just thrilling? I mean, think about this. This is, this is so incredible. We have a mission in this world. 
This world is not simply an unending succession of cause and effect and cause and effect, you know, and we just are kind of this cogs in a machine, and this world is not meaninglessness. It's not without purpose. You have a purpose in the world. Are you living into it? Are you living up to it? And Jesus, he doesn't say you should be or you could be or you ought to be salt and light. Jesus says, no, you are salt and light. He names us truer than we name ourselves. He gives us a vocation higher than we've given ourselves. He says, you have purpose and meaning in this world. Are you living into it? You are salt, you are light. But Jesus knows us. He knows his church. And so he identifies in our text two ways in which we can go off the rails. He says, first, salt can lose its saltiness. And second, light can be put under a basket. And in these two different ways we can go off the rails, Jesus speaks of two ways in which we, Christ church, can actually go default in the mission that God has given us. Look at what he says in verse 13. Again, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? And so he, is, he says, look, he says, salt can lose its saltiness. And what he's naming here is the problem of cultural accommodation. Now, it's easy, it's very easy, I think, for the church today to look at history and to see with clarity where the church was accommodated to the culture. It's easy to look at uh, the deep south back in the days of slavery and see people who, who named the name of Christ and who held slaves under their care and then beat them up. I can remember reading a narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, and Frederick Douglass has this, this stark picture that he paints of this revival that comes into town. And he says that his, his master, his, his owner, went to this revival, and he said he got religion, and he came home and he was twice as mean as he was before. Because the church had accommodated. Of course, we can look back in the South in the days uh, before the civil rights movement of Jim Crow laws. And we can see the church accommodated when they would not let blacks to the table, to the Lord's table in churches. And you can see the church was accommodated. It's more difficult to see the ways in which we are accommodated today. Because, you know, it's like uh, the older fish who swam by the two little fish. And he looks over at them. He says, hey, boys, how's the water? And the two fish are swimming past him. And one fish looks to the other. He says, what's water? You're in it. And you can't see it. So what are the ways in which we have accommodated to the broader culture's mentality about wealth, about possessions, about materialism and consumerism? Last week, or a couple weeks ago, I was having dinner with um, uh, Pastor Robert's uh, doctoral mentor from the Netherlands. And we were having this conversation about the house that I lived in. I was telling him the story of how we got this house. Uh, we put in an offer, and on the same day, we put in an offer within 48 hours of the house being on the market. And with, within, like, I don't know, a few hours of us putting in our offer, somebody put in an offer for $40,000 higher than our offer. 
And the sellers of the house looked at the offers, and they knew this was only 48 hours in. This was the day when, uh, you know, this was back in the spring. It was like terrible summer. It was a terrible time to be buying a house. But everything would just go up and up and up and up and up and up. And up. You had these bidding wars. And uh, they looked at the offer ahead of ours, and they said, we want to sell to the Swanson family. And I was telling uh, this guy from the Netherlands about this, and he said, yeah, he said, um, I, I said, that is so incredibly countercultural and counterintuitive and so different because in America, our, our question that we typically ask is, what's the bottom line? Like the bottom line is the bottom line. How, who's going to give me the most? And that's who I sell it to. But our, our, our sellers were operating out of a different set of values that said the bottom line for us is not the bottom line. And it was funny because this guy from the Netherlands said, you know, uh, in the Netherlands, we, we actually, uh, we have a word for that. We, and, and the word that, that he, he, he gave to it was, was, I don't remember the word in uh, Dutch, but it essentially meant you're worthy to buy the house. And he said, it is frequently the case that we will sell to people for under $100,000 of what someone else was offering us because we just felt like the person who was offering us more was not worthy. And I just heard that. I thought, that is so un-American. <laughs> but yet, isn't, doesn't, doesn't the gospel call us to operate out of a different set of values when it comes to such practical things as selling homes and a million gazillion other issues? And we can be accommodated to the culture so that the culture's values becomes the church's values. But in the Sermon on the Mount, what is Jesus doing? He is forming an alternative community, a people who are marked by a poverty of spirit, a deep humility and meekness, merciful people, peacemakers, not warmongers, people who understand rather than demand that they be understood, people who go the extra mile, who turn the other cheek, who love their enemies, who don't worry about money because why would you worry about something so frivolous as money? Who don't judge people, who are radically faithful in their marriage, who are radically humble with their own anger, always moving towards people with reconciliation, who practice spiritual disciplines of charity and of prayer and of fasting. And Jesus says, when you are living this kind of alternate community, man, you make a difference. And so he says, you'll go off the rails with cultural accommodation. You become like a chameleon Christian. And what does a chameleon do? A chameleon adapts to its surroundings. And Jesus says, you must not adapt to your surroundings. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. But the second way we can go off the rails is not simply with accommodation, but secondly, we can go off the rails through retreat or withdrawal, where we withdraw from the world an active engagement by showing hospitality to the people who live on this side of us and this side of us on our streets, by engagement with the civic life of a community in the life of, of your work and in schools and whatnot. You can withdraw from that into a little Christian enclave, a little Christian ghetto, and you can have all of your Christian stuff. You can have your Christian t-shirts and your Christian bumper stickers and your Christian music and your Christian friends, and you can kind of insulate yourself in a Christian bubble. And you might be living different, but you've withdrawn. And Jesus says those who accommodate and those who withdraw are in equal danger of losing their effectiveness. Those who withdraw, Jesus says, are like a lamp that is put under a basket. He says, people, 
You don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. You don't pull the light under a basket. No, you put it on a stand for everyone to see. And Jesus says, and so let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, if we take all of this together, what Jesus is teaching us, here is his secret sauce in this text. This is our secret sauce if we are going to make an impact in this next season together as a church. Listen, we've done, I think, a lot of good and important work over the last year of building. We have built a new staff team. We've done a bunch of renovations in our, the houses we own and in this sanctuary and in our, in our church offices. Uh, we've built an internship program. We've built out new community groups. There's different ways in which we've done important work of building. But this is really just a foundation for the real work of moving out into the world with a distinct, alternative, countercultural way of life where we are fully engaged, fully involved in the life of our neighborhoods and in our place of employment and in, our, in, in the culture and society, the political life of this world, acting as a faithful presence of Christ. So we need to both be both distinct and engaged. This is it. Now, some people are distinct. They're different, but they're withdrawn. They're not engaged. Other people are engaged, but they don't live a distinct way of life. Which, of course, of those two options, I prefer the former rather than the latter. I'd rather have you be a person of character who is withdrawn than somebody who has no character and who, who, who acts out of the same hypocrisy, the same critical attitudes and self-righteousness, and the same treatment of money and power and sex as people in the world. And then you go out and you, you open your mouth to everyone around you about God. And you ruin Christian witness. Jesus says you need to be both distinct, both living this alternative way of life, embracing and learning to walk in the way of Jesus and then fully engaged in the life of the world. And when you do that, you make a difference. So what about us? What about us? Are we engaged in the world and are we living distinct ways of life? Let me just get really practical and ask you this one simple question. Do you know your neighbors? And do your neighbors know you? Do you invite them into your home? Do you live before them? Do you know what their struggles are, what their troubles are, what their pains are? Do you know who they are? Have you allowed yourself to be known by your neighbors? That's engagement in the surrounding culture. That's not putting your light under a basket. It's putting your light on display. We need to be both distinct and engaged. This is the secret sauce. But listen, there is actually a secret sauce below the secret sauce. Because how is it that we can act? I mean, this is a tremendous, it's a beautiful call. I think this is inspiring, don't you? I mean, who wants to live a life of numbness and insignificance and zero influence? I don't, do you? I want to live a life that makes a difference in this world. And yet this puts a demand on us on our character and our own virtue? Are we walking in the way of Jesus? 
Are we living with honesty and faithfulness and truthfulness and holiness and generosity and hospitality and grace and enemy love? Are we actively engaged in reconciliation with people who we have differences of opinion? Are we peacemakers? Are we merciful? Like, this is a high calling, isn't it? Who can ever be this kind of light in the world? Jesus, right? Jesus is the true light of the world who came into darkness so that he might drive out finally and utterly and completely the injustice and the pain and the sin and the shame and the suffering and the demonic powers in this world that are wreaking havoc and destruction. Christ came to drive it out finally and completely. And that is good news. And he came out not only to engage in this work, but to do it in a distinctly different way, not with guns and ammo, but with sacrificial cross-shaped love. This is his way in the world. This is how his kingdom moves forward. He says, I am the light of the world. And he came with his cross-shaped love to drive out the darkness in your own heart and life by sheer grace. It's interesting to me that in this text, when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, we can say that Jesus is the light of the world. But there's nowhere that Jesus says that he is the salt of the earth. Isn't that interesting? He never takes this analogy and applies it to himself. And I think the reason is, is because the metaphor of salt is insufficiency. It's insufficient for the fullness of all that Jesus came to do. Jesus did not come into the world simply to prevent further decay. Jesus came into the world to bring decay and death and darkness to a final and a complete end. When Christ died on the cross, he was bearing in himself all of the darkness, all of the sin, all of the shame, all of the guilt of humanity in his own life, and he bore it in himself, and he exhausted its power, and he brought it to a complete and final end with his cross-shaped divine love. And Christ did not come simply to enhance the bits of goodness that are in the world, Jesus came into the world to make everything resurrection new. He came in to make new creation. And he came into the world not simply to make good men better. He came into the world to make sinful, dead men alive and new. And this is why he has come. And he says, come to me. I will be your light. Come and receive your light Come and be infected with my own light and then carry that out into the world. Receive my love and my grace today and each day and then be a bearer of my love and my light and my grace in the world.